Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. And I would invite you to take your Bibles and go with me to John chapter 2 this morning. John chapter 2. As you turn, I want uh, to encourage you to imagine a few scenes that I believe will be helpful for us as we consider our text this morning. First of all, imagine the mall in the days leading up to Christmas. Just get that image in your mind. Also, imagine Times Square on New Year's Eve. The mall, the days leading up to Christmas, Times Square on New Year's Eve. Thirdly, a little more close to home, imagine the farmer's market down in the hay market. Beautiful Saturday morning in September. Maybe it's also a game day, Husker game day, home, home game here. Imagine these scenes. As you do, you realize that all of these scenes are packed with people and bustling with activity. All kinds of activity going on. In all of these scenes, there's also commerce, thriving commerce taking place around particular events like Christmas, New Year's, game day, harvest, right? People are everywhere, it's loud, it's crowded, and commercialism abounds, right? These mental images, I think, get us close to our text. And so with that, would you allow your eyes to fall on John chapter 2 and verse 13? Where John writes, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Let's pause right there for a moment. Now, Jesus, verse 12, has been in the city of Capernaum, the town really in ancient Galilee, uh, for several days. They've been there for some time, hanging out as a family. But then John records that the Passover scene had arrived. And so Jesus left Galilee to go up to Jerusalem. It was south, but always up, climbing uh, to the top of the mountain there called Jerusalem at this time, the city of Jerusalem. So verse 14, in the temple, here's what he found. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, pause your reading for a moment. As you imagine Jesus walking from Galilee up to Jerusalem, understand that he's not traveling alone. He's traveling with thousands of people. Okay, this is a giant caravan of people. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus records that in the Passover season, Jerusalem would swell to over two million people. Now, that's remarkable. Two million people in that ancient city in and around the holy temple there in Jerusalem. Now, some commentators in Josephus' day suggest that his numbers are inflated. Perhaps the number that they would argue is, is closer to 500,000 people. But if it's 500,000 people, like half a million people, that's still a ton of people, right? Now, you guys know what 90,000 people looks like in Nebraska's temple, right? <laughs> you guys know what that looks like. That's a lot of people. Imagine half a million people. There are people everywhere. It's crazy. 
So imagine the excitement. Imagine the celebration that's in the air. And pause for a moment and ask yourself this question. Why is Passover such a big deal? This is a crucial question to answer in order to understand this text, my friends. Why is Passover such a big deal? Why is everyone coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival called Passover? Why did Jesus go there? Why did the Son of God go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover? Well, in order to answer that question, and in order to understand the anger that resides in Jesus' heart at this scene, let's look at the Passover in three movements. First of all, let's go back about 4,000 years, about 2,000 years from the time of Christ, about 4,000 years from today, and to a moment in which God came to a man called Abram, who would later be called Abraham. God comes to Abraham and simply says to Abraham, follow me to the land that I will show you. And Abraham believed God. He just trusted the voice of God and he followed him. And Paul will later say, and God credited that faith to him as righteousness helping us to understand that salvation has always been by grace through faith alone. Amen? Always been by faith. As a part of this overture that God makes uh, to Abraham, he promises Abraham that he will have a son, which was a remarkable promise because Abraham and his wife Sarah were up in years and they didn't have any children. Uh, Sarah was unable to have children, but God promised them that they would have a son. And eventually, God made good on that promise. He gave them a son, a son that they would call Isaac. But then several years after that, God asked Abraham to do the unthinkable. He asked Abraham to take that son, his only son Isaac, into the land of Moriah, to Mount Moriah, to the place God said that I will show you, Abraham. And I want, to take you, I want you to take him there and I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering to me. Now just think about that moment. Abraham, again, believes God, trusts God, takes his son Isaac. Along the way, they have a tender moment in which Isaac says to his father, Dad, we have the wood, we have the fire, but where is the lamb? And Abraham winsomely responds with, God will provide the lamb. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. He will provide. But they continue their journey. They go onto the top of Mount Moriah, and Abraham builds an altar, and it's all prepared. And then he asks his son to lay across that altar. Can you imagine that moment? Put yourself there. Abraham and Isaac. Isaac is now laying on the altar. His son, this son he'd waited his whole life for. Imagine the emotions that are running through Abraham in this moment. Perhaps part confusion, perhaps part frustration. But in this moment, Abraham, just trusting God, raises his knife. And as he does, God says, stop, pause. And he directs Abraham's attention over to the thicket where there is a ram caught. And so Abraham says, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. God provided the lamb. Amen? He provided the lamb in order to spare Isaac, in order to spare this son that God had promised would become a nation. 
and a nation he did become. So several hundred years later, we can flash forward now in Israel's history, we find that Isaac has become a great nation, a thriving nation, you might say. And yet, they are in captivity. They are in bondage as slaves to the empire of Egypt. They are there, the Bible tells us, for some 400 years. They're in the land of Egypt as slaves until God raises up a deliverer, a man named Moses. And so Moses comes before Pharaoh and says, famous line, let my people go. Well, Pharaoh won't respond. And so God sends plagues upon the land of Egypt, all culminating in a 10th plague, a final plague in which he would send the angel of death throughout the land of Egypt. And on one night, the angel of death would smite the firstborn son of every family, with one exception. The one exception is that every home that was covered, the front door covered with the blood of an unblemished lamb, the angel of death would then pass over that home, and the eldest son would live. What is God doing? My friends, God is providing. Amen? God is providing. Deliverance for the firstborn son, and then ultimately deliverance for the people of Israel. As he released them from bondage in Egypt, the people are freed. Why? Because God provided for them. We might say Jehovah Jireh. Now in Egypt, Jehovah Jireh on Mount Moriah. Jehovah Jireh in Egypt. Now, when this occurs... Um, with the Egyptian captivity, God let his people go. Moses says to them in the book of Exodus and then also in Deuteronomy, we'll look at it together. I want you to remember this. People of Israel, don't forget it. Do not forget what I have done for you. Consider Exodus chapter 13. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. You shall therefore keep this statute of Passover at its appointed time year to year. So every year, if we're understanding the history of Passover, every year the people of God were to gather and celebrate festival, feast, sacrifice to remember the Passover, remember what God had done in a more formal way. Moses instructs the people this way in Deuteronomy chapter 16. You'll see it on the screen. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place. Now, make special note of this place. At the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it, there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. What are we finding here? We're finding a lot of truth. We'll, we'll seek to unpack it for a moment. But one thing that you find here is that God is telling them to remember, remember this moment in which God wrought deliverance for them, but do it in a particular place. 
in a place that I'm going to show you. Now, as the history of Israel uh, begins then to unfold, what we find is that God established a residence for himself, a dwelling place for himself in what was called the tabernacle that eventually became the temple. But first, the tabernacle. And so I want you to think about this, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord is providing, continuing to provide for his people through this tabernacle. Now what's remarkable about the tabernacle is that it was an expression of God's desire to be with his people, which is awesome. Like you and I should be so thankful for this, so excited about this. Our hearts should be warmed by this reality that God desires to dwell with us and amongst us. Now consider it from the word of God, Exodus chapter 25. God says to Moses, let them construct a sanctuary for me. By the way, feel free to shout some amens. This is good stuff, okay? That relates not only to Israel, but to us today. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and I will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. <laughs> this is awesome. What a remarkable truth. God desires to dwell with his people. And so he did so first through the tabernacle and then in a final resting place, he did so through the temple. Now, this is beautiful, my friends, and it starts to put some of these pieces together. Where did God instruct for the temple to be built? On the very same spot, the very same spot where God instructed Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. The very same spot where God first provided the lamb. God provided a sacrifice for his people there on Mount Moriah. Consider 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Note the next phrase, on Mount Moriah. Jehovah Jireh, my friend, still providing for his people in Moriah. And when the song was raised, this is at the dedication of this temple that Solomon had built in honor of God a place where God would manifest his presence among his people. When the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments, can you imagine this worship service? At the dedication of the temple, in praise to the Lord, part of one of their songs was, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. <laughs> so though God did not dwell bodily at this point, God did not dwell bodily with his people. Here in this moment of dedication, God manifests his presence. And he does so in this moment tangibly. It came there in a thick cloud that descended and everyone was in awe. God is here. God is with us. Undoubtedly, many of the people of Israel probably got on their face before God and just worshipped, just totally amazed that this God who split the Red Sea would come right here and meet with us. It's awesome. And so they worshipped their God. 
So although my friends understand that God could not be contained or confined by a temple, he had nevertheless determined to dwell with his people through this place. Thus, it was here, if you know this text, it was here that God had prescribed for his people to celebrate the Passover. So if you remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 16, the place that God had declared for his presence to be, this is the place where he would uh, instruct his people to sacrifice at Passover in remembrance of what he'd done, in remembrance of his ancient provision of the lamb, first for Isaac, then for the people of Israel and their escape from Egypt, and now ongoing in the temple to remember. So Passover, my friends, if we could put this all together, Passover was to be both a solemn and celebratory moment for the people of God to come together, the people of Israel to come together and remember. This is what God has done. Let's remember together what God has done. And perhaps sing songs like Psalm 124. Had it not been God who was on our side, let Israel now say, had it not been God who was on our side, we would have been swallowed up quick. But... But what? He is on our side. He has been on our side. How privileged are we to be God's people? This is what it should have been, my friends. When Jesus entered the temple 2,000 years ago, this is what it should have been. It should have been a sea of people that were amazed to be in the presence of God, tears coming down their faces. Perhaps some of them on their face before God say, thank you, thank you, God. You've been so good. You always provide. Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Jireh. God is providing for us. He is so good. This, my friends, is the context. This is the context of Passover. This is what God made flesh should have seen. This is not what he saw, is it? I hope and trust that all of this context helps you grab this moment. For what we find here is that Jesus encounters a charade and it makes his blood boil. He's furious. My friends, he's furious. Note your text, verse 14 again. In the temple, what did he find? All sorts of people praying, worshiping, G worshiping God. No, that's not what he found. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And the money changers sitting there. This is what he found. It sounds normal. My friends, it sounds normal the way John writes it. It sounds normal, and it probably was normal to a point for the people of Israel, certainly the people in Jerusalem at that time. But it was nothing like what it should have been. Here, in fact, the house of propitiation had become the house of prophet. Here, the call to worship was drowned out by the clangs of commerce, the court of the Gentiles, which was a vast area whereby God welcomed people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language to come in and worship Yahweh. This court of the Gentiles was now filled, filled with booths aimed at gain, 
And the religious elite, instead of helping people worship God, the religious elite helped themselves, the people's money. This is why, internally, Jesus is so angry. And this is why you and I should be so glad that he was. For the religious elite here, they were taking advantage of two obvious needs for the pilgrims. For people that were traveling far distances to come to the temple to worship God, they couldn't bring their livestock with them. Moreover, they would have had to exchange money. For the priests had instituted a new law, a new rule, that they could not use Roman currency. For the Roman currency was stamped with, for example, the head of Caesar. That's blasphemous, they said. So you have to exchange it for Jewish shekels. Right. And so booths for money exchange were everywhere. Sheep, oxen, doves, it was everywhere. There were, there were animal crates everywhere. As far as the eye could see in the court of the Gentiles, it was just a, a mall. It was a flea market. So at some point along the way, one of the religious elite, they decided, why don't we just bring this all into the temple? I mean, we've got a lot of space in there. Be a great place to capitalize on all these people coming. Right? Let's just bring it into the temple. It was corrupt. Utter corruption. One historian writes this. Extortion was common in the temple confines. Just that sentence alone, it's like, should drive you nuts in your heart. Extortion was common in the temple confines. To make things worse, Annas, the high priest at this time, was behind the whole thing. Sarcastic commentators in those days, contemporaries of Annas the high priest, dubbed the temple the bazaars of Annas. Think about that. This is contemporary commentators saying about the high priest and his temple, this is a bazaar. This whole thing is a bazaar. So they knew that the high priest actually sold franchises for money-changing booths and animal sales in the temple. This is what the high priest is doing, selling franchises. Like That's a sweet corner right there. I mean, you, you get a lot of people coming in here to exchange money right there. You want that corner? This is what's going on. Utter corruption. This is why Jesus is angry, my friends. Now, certainly they are taking advantage of the people of God here, but what John seems more so to emphasize in this moment is the reality that they're doing it all inside the temple confines. This is what makes Jesus the most upset. One theologian puts it this way, the house that was built to display his glory is now filled with sounds of commerce. Gone are silent prayers to God. They have been exchanged for the angry chorus of men haggling over the price of bulls and sheep. The cooing of doves and the stink of manure now occupy the place that used to be reserved for men to humble themselves and worship God. This is why Jesus is angry, my friends. And again, why you and I should be so thankful that he is. So what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do in the face of all of this? 
I would suggest to you that he went full-on beast mode. <laughs> Verse 15, check it out in your text. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Can you imagine this scene? And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus makes a whip of cords and he begins to yell, take these things out, get out of my father's house. Now, the fact that he calls this his father's house is significant. We'll get to that later in chapter 5. But the Pharisees will be very offended that he says stuff like this. No one calls God father. But Jesus is making explicit claims to deity, that he is indeed the son of God. He is divine. So he calls him father. In effect, Jesus is saying, this is my house. This is God's house. Get out. This whole thing that you've made it, get out. So Jesus, can you imagine him with a whip of cords? is driving them all out of the temple. Several years ago, uh, Zoe was like four or five years old. It's probably like five years ago or something like that. It was a Sunday afternoon, and we were doing at the dinner table what we always do. We ask the kids, like, what did you learn in church? What did you learn about God today? Think about God. And when we got around to Zoe, again, she's like four years old, so cute. I mean, she's still cute, but so cute. (laughs) Here's what she said, and and I quote. And remember the text. He drove them out of the temple. Uh, Zoe goes, Jesus went into the temple, and he made a whip, and he was angry. We were like on the edge of our seats. You know, what's she going to say next? And so she says, he made a whip, got into his truck, and drove out of the temple. (laughs) That's what she said. (laughs) It was so good. Oh, so somewhere along the way, that whip became a diesel engine. (laughs) Or maybe a Ford F-150, I don't know, but that was awesome. He did not have a truck, but he did have fire in his eyes. Jesus, fire in his eyes. And it's remarkable to think about the fact that John says he drove them all out. Did you note that? Verse 15. He drove them all out, which speaks to his authority ultimately, but just think about this. I mean, Jesus is the man. Are you with me? He drove them all out. Can you imagine how many people were in there? I mean, this place was vast. And it's Passover season. I'm guessing that the place was packed with people, but all of a sudden, everybody is going for the exits. Because there's this man. And he's driving everyone out. It's remarkable. My friends, what it is, is a display of sovereign authority. This is nothing short of miraculous on par with what he's already done with water to wine. 
Jesus is Lord. He's Lord and he's displaying it here with his powerful presence of authority. Can you imagine the disciples in this moment? I'm imagining that their jaws are agape. <laughs> they, they are probably shocked. I mean, to this point in John's gospel, they had just simply seen him walking, right? In chapter one, John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, but he's just walking, pretty undercover, discreet, if you will. In chapter two, we find him at the wedding of Cana. He performs the miraculous there, but he does so kind of behind the scenes, right? In an understated way, just fill those jars, take it to the master of the feast, boom, it's, it's wine. It's incredible, but it's understated. He goes to Capernaum, and now he comes here, and suddenly Jesus has a whip in his hand, and everybody's running. You, can you imagine that? The disciples must have been totally dumbfounded. Uh, we were laughing this week. Matt McGrew had the thought, and I think this is genius. James and John, however, were probably pretty, pretty pumped about this. <laughs> That's my guy, right? <laughs> Give me a whip, the sons of thunder. <laughs> Jesus might have had to told, tell them to you know, drop their whips or whatever. But Jesus effectively says, this is my house. This is my house, and you've made it a mockery. He's angry. My friends, he's mad, and it's so good. It's so good. So the question is why? Why is this so good for us? It's good because this, my friends, is the real Jesus. This is the real Jesus. Remember that John's aim here is that we would see and believe, that we would see Jesus for who he is and truly believe. But John is not giving us an unfinished portrait. Please track with this. John is not giving us an unfinished portrait. Like a beautiful mosaic, John is putting together a portrait of Jesus, piece by piece. But this piece, that Jesus is angry, righteously angry, is a significant and important piece to that portrait. So Jesus is not a sort of go-along-to-get-along type of guy. God is not a go-along-to-get-along kind of God. Our God, my friends, is holy, our God is exclusive with the truth. Our God is a disruptor of evil. Here he expresses a righteous anger, a righteous, a pure anger at the corruption of God's temple. Moreover, at the injustice for God's people. Jesus is mad. He's mad. And I would say, you and I should be so glad that he is. So glad, so thankful. For as we've often stated, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference or ambivalence. His anger in this moment expresses his passion, his passion for the truth, his passion, passion for the holiness of God, his passion for people. So my friends, understand, God is not indifferent or ambivalent about the evil in this world. He's not indifferent about the injustice in this world. Not at all. God is deeply passionate. He hates the sin and corruption and evil that exists in this world, but that's why he is bound and determined to redeem it. Amen? This is what he's doing. This is what he's doing in Christ. He is redeeming it. What a blessing this is. So Jesus' anger 
is nothing like our typical anger. Jesus is not angered because he's been inconvenienced. He's not angered because he's been mistreated. He expects to be mistreated. Jesus is angry because the glory of God is at stake. The people of God are at stake. This is what brings his blood to boil. I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon has to say when he talks about Jesus in this quote. Some men, he says nowadays, talk of him as if he were simply incarnate benevolence. But thus we have minister after minister, pastor after pastor that won't stand, won't just preach the word of God and get out of the way. They will argue Jesus was just kind. He was just benevolent. Let's not ruffle feathers. Let's go along to get along. Spurgeon says, mm, it is not so. No lips ever spoke with such thundering indignation against sin as the lips of the Messiah. We speak of Christ as being meek and lowly in spirit, and so he was. But his meekness was balanced by his courage and by the boldness with which he denounced hypocrisy. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you brood of vipers. How can you escape the damnation of hell? Spurgeon says, these are not the words of the milksop. Some authors represent Christ to have been. He is a man, stern as a warrior, in the midst of the day of battle. My friends, make no mistake about our God and about our Savior. He is full of authority. In this moment, he has fire in his eyes. So question, do you know the real Jesus? Do you know the real Jesus? Can I also say, there is nothing about Jesus that is wimpy. Nothing. Is Jesus kind? He is, but he's also strong. Amen? He is what none of us are. He is what none of us could ever be. He is everything. Amen? He is everything. So, John is giving us a picture of the real Jesus. Secondly, understand that he is zealous. This real Jesus is zealous for real worship. So his disciples say, in verse 17, zeal for your house will consume me. They remember that that's been written. And they intuit in this moment that this is a messianic moment. This is a messianic psalm. This is about him. Zeal for your house will consume me. It wasn't just about David who loved the house of God. David who wrote, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. He loved the house of God. But ultimately, it wasn't David's zeal. It was the Messiah's zeal. It was Christ's zeal that was consuming for him in this moment. So Jesus is zealous for the Father's name, that the Father's name would be hallowed in this place and appropriately worshipped, rightly honored and glorified. Moreover, he is zealous for his people that they would have a place whereby they could meet with God, for God desires to meet with his people. So he desires that people would have unhindered, unfettered access to him. 
So, my friends, I think you and I need to understand that there is always a tendency, always a temptation, especially because the prince of the power of the air wants it this way. There's always a temptation for any kind of organized religion, any kind of organized faith, such as a church like this, a congregation like this, or a denomination. There's always a temptation to make it about people and money. Always. There's always a temptation for it to devolve into this show about a person and about money. Sometimes displayed in fancy buildings and big monuments. That's always a temptation. And so the religious establishment always needs to be confronted with the truth, always needs to be confronted and checked, always needs to be held accountable. In Jesus' earthly life, nothing, if you study his life, nothing angered him more than the corruption that was at work amongst the Pharisees that was at work amongst the Sadducees and the high priests and all the priests. It was a mess. And Jesus reserved his most heated passion, his strongest language for them. But it wasn't just in Jesus' day. The religious establishment has always needed to be confronted. <clears throat> Some have sought, I would say, over the years to malign the character of men like Martin Luther malign his character that he was a rebel or a rabble-rouser in an attempt to dismiss the, the crucial work that God used him to accomplish. But I would suggest to you that if Martin Luther was a rebel, he was not a perfect man by any stretch, but if he was a rebel, he was a rebel in the ilk of Jesus, in the mode of Jesus. For what did he encounter? In his day, he encountered the Catholic Church in the process of selling forgiveness. Selling the opportunity for people to be forgiven. Selling the opportunity for people to have a, a quick journey to heaven for money. All for the purpose of building fancy buildings. St. Peter's Basilica, we need cash, right? What are we going to do? We're going to get it. We're going to use the gospel to get what we need, to get the building built. This is what happens, my friends. It wasn't just in Luther's day either. There are charlatans today. My friends, there are charlatans today. The people that are preaching the, the gospel or singing the gospel, and it's all for profit. I'm not going to drop names. I, I, I'm not the ultimate judge. You have to be the judge. Ultimately, this leads me to ask you guys to hold us accountable. The way we operate as a church, we've invited, the elders here have invited accountability and invited you to say, elders, pastors, are we diverting from the truth? Are we watering down the truth in order to be more appealing to the culture? Because we need more of this. There have been a lot of churches over the years who've built a lot of fancy buildings and then figured out, we need to pay for this. We can't afford to lose people. And so begins the process of watering down the truth or changing the message in order to be more appealing, more palatable to culture. Could I invite you, my friends, today? Could I invite you as a congregation to hold us accountable, to not swerve from the truth, 
Whoever's right here needs to simply unfold the word of God, get out of the way, right? And if there's an issue, we go to the word of God to sell it, settle it. Amen? You guys with me on that? Is this not about a person at all or ultimately an opinion? We'll talk all day about what, what does this say? As we seek faithfully, week in, week out, just to come to the text, not our ideas, not our sermon series, but the text of Scripture, because we want to know what God has to say. This is Jesus' passion here. Nobody's hearing from God. It's a show. It's a sham. This whole thing is a mess. It needs to go. And so he makes the whip. And he says, get out. Like, get out of my father's house. Enough. Enough of this. But we have to be careful. All these temptations are present for us as well. The last thing I want to say to you, my friends, from this text is that the Savior here is also zealous for your heart. With regard to his zeal for worship, he's zealous for your heart. May it not be lost on us that the temple in Jerusalem is no longer the center. All right? God's meeting with his people. You know where that is? You know where that is? In your heart, if you know him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. He's in you. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. He's with you. So permit me for a moment to apply Jesus cleaning out the temple to your own heart. If Jesus were to come into your heart and life right now, what would he clean out? If he has a whip, what would he clean out of your heart so that you can really see God? So that you can really worship God? What idols have you perhaps constructed in your heart that are obstructing your view of God? Distracting you from devotion to God? What would he knock down? What would he clean out? Because ultimately, this Savior desires, my friends, desires that his people would worship. This is why he's angry. This is why this is so endearing. He is passionate for your presence in his presence and that it would be undiluted. Could I invite you to allow him to inspect you and maybe do some house cleaning here. What a Savior we serve. What a God we serve. He is Jehovah Jireh. He has always been providing for his people. For Abraham and Isaac, for the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt, for the people of Israel year after year in the temple, and as we will see next week, ultimately in Christ. Ultimately in Christ. Jehovah Jireh. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your grace. You are so good. Thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, we, we look forward to seeing you face to face and perhaps talking about this moment with you. But we want to say this morning that we are just so thankful that you were passionate 
you were not indifferent. We are thankful that you were angry at the right things 